0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Xfinity. Some things are slow, like snail races. Other things are fast, like Xfinity XFi. Get fast speeds, even when everyone is online, working to make Wi-Fi simple, easy, awesome. More at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply.
1: There's this video that I cannot stop watching, filmed a couple of years ago in Mosul, Iraq, during the first peaceful month that that city had had in a long time. The video is scored with this music, and it starts in an ordinary supermarket, just like an Iraqi a and People walking by, filling up their baskets with bottles of shampoo and Sunquick Cola and baklava and boxed milk. And all this time, on the linoleum floor, right in the middle of the aisle, there is an empty plastic water bottle two feet from the trash can. Everyone is stepping over it, or walking around it. Finally, a little girl, maybe seven or eight years old, in a blue sundress with a bow in the back, she lets go of her mom's hand, reaches down, picks up the bottle, and tosses it in the trash. (laughs) Dozens of people jump out of the aisles, and they're clapping, and someone puts a microphone in the girl's face and asks her name. She says, it's Sarah. He says, thank you for cleaning our city. He gives her mom a box of chocolates and then she leaves, and the whole thing is repeated. The bottle is placed again on the floor. This time, it's a woman who picks it up. Again, applause, thank yous, chocolates, and a third time.
2: Yeah, I was uh, one of these guys, clapping for these people.
1: Safwan Medani is one of the makers of this video. Though on screen, he just plays a bit role, just one of the clapping people. You can see him there with soft brown eyes, gelled hair. He's 29 years old, and he says this video is about something much bigger than picking up litter.
2: I just was trying to consolidate the idea of citizenship and how to love the city you belong to.
1: Loving the city you belong to was kind of a tough thing to ask of the people of Mosul. This video was filmed weeks after the end of a long war a war that followed years of occupation by ISIS. People had spent so long bunkered down in their houses, afraid to draw any attention to themselves. Safran felt that even helping out in this tiny way, that was something to celebrate.
3: So Mosul, as long as I've been going there, was the kind of place where you just kept her head down.
1: Jane Araf is the one who told me about this video. She'd covered Iraq for three decades and never seen anything like it.
3: Under al-Qaeda or ISIS, even if you saw somebody placing a bomb on your street, you would be really careful about who you reported it to because then you could be targeted. And it was like that even before that under the Saddam days. It was just safer to keep to yourself. You hear this morning? Yes. And then all of a sudden... You? I was meeting all of these people coming together um, to do things like clean schools and hospitals. You know what, I think the trying to get through. And I would go out on the street and I would see the guy with the loudspeaker kind of preaching the benefits of volunteerism on the sidewalk.
1: Is he saying, we need to work for no money. Like, what is he... <laughs>
3: what I remember him emphasizing was the fact that we can make a difference.
1: I'm Gregory Warner, and this is Rough Translation, the show that takes you far away with stories that hit close to home. As Jane started digging into what was happening in Mosul, she met these larger-than-life people, like a 23-year-old nurse who started going around the city finding bodies of fighters and defusing suicide belts. You don't
3: think that's a little
1: bit crazy? That was her volunteerism project.
4: If I think I know how to do
5: it, then I can do it.
1: Or that guy Safwan, who made that supermarket video, he has since taken on the task of restoring the city's water infrastructure. After, uh, the water will come back there. Uh, to all so today on the show, we're gonna tell you these two stories about one person trying to clear away death the other trying to bring life. In a place where just cleaning up your city can feel like an act of rebellion.
2: a dumper and it's like a You, know, you, you, hate, you hate the smell and, and the sound of it.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Wix.com. Rough translation connects listeners to untold stories from around the world. With Wix, create your own professional website to connect your own stories. Choose a template you love and customize it with your own text, images, and videos. With hundreds of intuitive design features, you can tell your story or someone else's exactly the way you want. Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's WIX.com slash translation to get 10% off.
1: We're back with Rough Translation. I'm Gregory Warner. Let me go on a limb here and say that every reporter I know who has spent time in Iraq knows Jane Raff. She was there covering Saddam Hussein, and then the second Gulf War, and then the rise of al-Qaeda, the American occupation, ISIS. And she has learned this way of talking about war and suffering with a great deal of calm.
3: Is it disconcerting that I'm calm? I wonder about that sometimes.
1: No, not at all. It's, okay. it's, is it how you are? Yeah, and Jane says this calmness is partly a holdover from growing up in Canada. Yeah. But partly it's just the hazard of her job as an NPR correspondent.
3: I mean, I'm desperately trying to convey the image of things, but I also don't want to upset whoever I'm talking to.
1: But in Mosul, even a year into the peace, long after that war to liberate the city from ISIS,
3: you have children going off to school at the start of the school year, and many of them will be passing by like severed hands that are coming out of these piles of rubble or bits of skulls. You could walk down pretty much every street and there were bodies.
1: Some of these bodies were being picked up, bodies of loved ones being claimed by their relatives, but thousands of other bodies were just left there, bodies of ISIS fighters or sometimes whole ISIS families.
3: Thrown on top of
1: piles of rubble. These were the bodies of the enemy, left there either out of disrespect or governmental neglect. But now, these bodies were getting in the way. This is another video that Jane showed me from a report on Vice News about a store owner who wants to rebuild his shops.
0: A local business owner who wants to reopen stores in his building, which was severely damaged in an airstrike.
1: But he's got a problem. In the front walkway where his customers would walk in, there is a human foot planted in the ground. Like, literally planted... You can see the bare toes, the sole, the ankle, and then what's under the ground? Nobody knows.
0: He's waited five months for authorities to do something about this foot
1: sticking out of the ground. Five months, no help. And then he hears about somebody he
0: can reach out to. There is one group trying to solve this problem. Volunteers who've taken on the grim task of removing the dead from the rubble. He calls a number,
1: and this team shows up that looks like a bunch of college kids. There is nothing official about them. They are not wearing hazmat suits, no badges, just shovels and gloves, and their leader is this 23 year old nurse named Sarur. Sarur al Husseini
3: has this commanding presence. But she's actually not a very large person. She's quite petite. Sometimes she wears, like, a Mickey Mouse T-shirt.
0: It takes about an hour for Husseini's team to remove this one body. When she checks the pockets.
1: There is a live grenade. It's a bomb?
4: Yeah, here. a bomb. Who
1: was this woman who'd assembled this team of guys to do this dangerous, gruesome work for zero pay? To tell that story, we need to go back a few years when ISIS still controlled this city. They'd imposed their extreme version of Sharia law.
3: It meant that people like Soror, women particularly, had all of these rules all of a sudden. They couldn't dress the way they wanted. They couldn't work anymore.
1: And Sarur, who'd then gotten her nursing degree and had a supportive husband who wanted to let her work, she wasn't allowed. So Sarur, who has nothing to do every day, will walk the half an hour to her parents' house and sit with her 14-year-old sister, Nabras. Her sister's school was shut down. And to pass the time... They would read together.
5: With some books, that would take me two or three days to read. And then some books, because they were smaller, I could finish two or three in a day.
3: Anything she could get her hands on, she would go to what used to be the local bookseller, and he would give her books that had the covers covered so nobody would know what she was reading. Because reading almost everything was banned under ISIS. What did you read? Everything.
5: I read novels, medical textbooks, stories, books about human development. I read everything.
3: One of the ironies of the ISIS occupation: all of a sudden, there were all of these people in Mosul, particularly women, who stayed home and they read books that would have been subversive to ISIS, and it was happening all over.
1: And why is that an irony?
3: It's an irony because it created these particularly young people who were exposed to all these different ideas that ISIS definitely would not have allowed to circulate.
4: Victor Victor Sarora says one of her favorites was
3: Les Miserables favorite. by Victor Hugo.
4: Favorite. Why was it your favorite?
3: I don't know, because the stories
5: that were in it were really nice. You know, it's kind of talking about the tragedy in people's lives. And it was talking about this mom that was trying to raise her daughters and was doing everything to try to make a better life for them. And it got to the point that she was selling her hair and her teeth just to make life a little bit
1: better. Surah loved Les Mis as a story of people sacrificing themselves. The are involved in fierce fighting with and as she and her sister were escaping into Moses. these novels, they were also listening to the news. Good morning. We're right
3: along the, front. the news was that U.S. and Iraqi forces were sweeping through ISIS-held territory and liberating other cities in Iraq. Then they got to Mosul and they liberated the East Side but Sarur and her family lived across the river on the west side.
1: Iraqi troops are pushing deeper into the densely populated old city. Sarur
3: and her
4: family
5: were trapped. No one could leave their home. There was gunfire everywhere, and every time that you went out, you were risking your life.
3: They've dropped leaflets telling people to stay away from ISIL hideouts.
5: inside Mortars were being shot at people's homes
3: and people were dying inside of their homes. She and her husband managed to flee through the fighting to the liberated east side to her uncle's house. But her family is still trapped on the west side.
5: So for two days I couldn't communicate with them, their phones were off and I didn't know what was going on with my family. On the third day I got up for the early morning prayer and then I tried calling them again and my older brother answered.
3: And what she learns was.
5: They were on their way to escape, but then they came to my house to get me too.
3: And they stayed there waiting for me, but they didn't realize that I had already escaped. There was a sniper, an ISIS sniper, who saw them. So they went in the house to wait, and her little sister had brought a book with her. She's sitting on a chair near the wall, reading the book. There's a metal door there. And that's when an airstrike hit the airstrike that would have been targeting the sniper. And the door collapsed on her. My sister was killed. She decides she's going to go back. And she crosses the river to the west where the battle is still going on. And when she does finally find her family, her brother has wrapped their sister's body in a blanket. And he's placed it on a wooden cart like they use to sell vegetables. And they wheel her through the rubble to try to take her to the east side to bury her. But they're stopped by officers before they get to the river. Uh, the like army somebody. said no. You can't cross the river with a dead body. No one.
4: It was
5: completely forbidden.
3: Sarur so can see all around her There are people hurriedly burying their loved ones In basements Or in the dirt around houses I completely refuse to leave my sister We totally refuse this thing So she goes to find the most senior officer there Turns out to be a lieutenant
4: colonel
3: I told him that I'm a nurse But I'm experienced
5: at stitching wounds And treating the wounded I asked him to agree to transfer my sister's body, and then I said, pretend that she's wounded and that she died on the way. If you accept this, then I'll come back to the west side, and I'll work with you guys as a nurse until it's fully liberated.
3: And not only does he let her cross, his officers put through and her family and the body of her sister in an ambulance, and they drive them across.
1: For the three days of mourning after the funeral, she keeps remembering something that the colonel said to her just before he put her in the ambulance that took them across the bridge.
5: He said to me, you're not going to return. The doctors in Mosul aren't coming back to help us. You're a girl, and you're not going to be able to come back to an area with military operations
4: going on. The
5: men aren't helping, so then of course like the women won't be helping either.
4: They have a stereotype
5: about Mosul, and I wanted to go back and change that image, even though I was just one person.
3: So this wasn't just a stereotype about women. This is a stereotype about the people of Mosul. Hmm. Mosul is an almost exclusively Sunni city now. And for decades, there has been a divide that's run through Iraq, Sunni and Shia. It enters into this because the security forces that came to liberate Mosul are mostly Shia.
1: What she's saying is, as a Sunni herself, and Mosul is a Sunni city, she's looked at with distrust by the Shia, by Shia security forces, and and ISIS is an extreme version of Sunni. So,
3: so the perception of a lot of Iraqis was that people in Mosul handed over their city to ISIS, and they didn't fight. So why would they fight now, and why would they care about Iraqi security forces?
5: In my opinion, the best revenge against
3: ISIS is to be humane. She tells her mother she's going back. And she's going to work with these Iraqi security forces on the front lines to win back her city.
4: We rescued people. Their aim
5: was to keep killing people.
3: sura's mom told me she was worried. She'd already lost one daughter and she didn't want to lose another But she was also proud of Sarur. I used to stay working in the field for
5: seven, eight, sometimes ten days or more. And then I'd go home for two days, and then I would come back to work.
3: She talks about sleeping with her boots on. She talks about being useful. I was helping people, especially women. There weren't any female medics at that particular place, so she was the one who could like undress the women to treat them. I was able to collect shrapnel and bullets. I mean, that that's the kind of training you do not get in nursing school.
1: The war takes six months. And by the end of it, Sura feels like a different person. She's got a new sense of herself and what she's capable of. So after victory is declared and there are parades in Baghdad and press conferences in Washington, Sarura heads back to the streets of her old neighborhood to see what's left.
3: She was seeing not just the destruction, these destroyed buildings and the remnants of people's lives. She was seeing bodies lying all over the place. There were cats darting in and out of the houses that were feeding on the bodies. She was worried that bodies could seep into the water supply. And she also specifically says it affected the
5: children. The children can become affected at a young age and become aggressive just from seeing these bodies everywhere.
1: So Surge decides she's got to get somebody to do something. But the first government agency she goes to, they said,
5: that's not our job. Go to the Department of Health for that. So she goes to the Department of Health. And and they said, it's not our job to collect these bodies. go to City Hall.
1: At City Hall, they're slammed. They can't help her either. But Soror does manage to strike a deal with them that if she bags up the bodies and drags them to the main road, City Hall trucks will come and take those bodies to the
5: morgue. At the end of the day, it's our city and nobody else's.
1: Her mother begs her, please don't do this. She's worried she'll catch a disease or get blown up.
3: And Sarur says, Mom, I'm sorry, even if you don't agree, I'm going. It just was not negotiable.
1: The way Sarur saw it, all her life she'd seen various rulers taking over Mosul and not helping people. She was done waiting, she said. People would criticize her for this impatience. They said that she tampered with evidence of war crimes, that she should leave ISIS bodies to the military. Sarur didn't care. She'd post messages on Facebook showing her team and saying things like,
5: We witnessed ISIS harming us while they're alive. And it's ridiculous to let ISIS keep harming us when they're dead.
3: So Soror started gathering volunteers. There was one girl, she was 18, still in high school. you say your name?
1: And we're just using her first name, or?
3: Yeah, Minar did not want her full name to be used because her parents didn't know that she had gone out collecting bodies. (laughs) So, Menard describes these grisly details, like it's hot, and the smell is almost unbearable, and the dead flesh is falling away in her hand. The flesh will fall off. At one point, she wiped her hand on her pants, which Surur told her was dangerous, and then she was scared to touch her own cell phone and get it infected. I mean, she'd never done anything like this before. But on the other hand, she talks about the team spirit, and how after picking up bodies, they ate lunch together and listened to music. Uh, she was surprised that a woman would lead a team, all-male team. So part of the camaraderie is it's a bunch of guys, right? It's just her and Sarur in a bunch of guys. And, you know, there's nothing illicit about it, but it's something that a lot of people wouldn't approve of. <laughs> At one point, the guys that she's working with joke with her that She's not allowed to touch the bodies because they're men. <laughs> Making fun that she's not allowed to carry the Daesh corpse And she seems to find this delightfully absurd. <laughs> you know, these would have been the men who were telling her she can't go outside until she's entirely covered all the way down to her fingertips. And there she was with those same hands, picking up their bodies.
1: Part of what gave Surur the courage to lead her team out into the rubble each day is that she wasn't the only one there. She could look out and see other young people doing things to help rebuild. Sometimes it felt to her like the only people doing anything out here were people her age, not the government. That gave Surur a sense of freedom, a freedom that some looked up to, but others thought would get her in big trouble. You remember that supermarket video that we started the episode with, made by a guy named Safwan? He was celebrating this very tiny act of just picking up a water bottle. Well, Safwan is also out here. He's part of this volunteerism movement going on in Mosul.
3: So you were explaining today you're laying water pipes. Is that what you're doing? You're fixing the pipes?
1: Yeah. All these houses, the water will come come back to them. But whereas Sarur has news stories written about her and she's very out front, she's got her name on T-shirts, Safwan is a lot quieter. Yeah. He is trying to do something that he has not wanted the government to know anything about.
3: Because Iraq is still the kind of place where if you get in somebody's way, particularly if there's money involved, you know, something bad could happen to your family.
2: Okay. All
3: right. So we're out with Safwan in the old city And he's walking down this kind of half destroyed main street. How old do you think these houses are?
2: Al Farouk neighborhood, it's maybe 150 years.
3: So we follow him as he goes down these little alleys.
2: Here, and uh, And he shows
3: us where they could put a pipe here, a valve there, where they could reconstruct the water system,
2: reconnect that pipes. The,
3: The streets where water has come back, they have children playing, and the kids are clean, and they're going to school. The streets where the water hasn't come back, those are the most desperate ones. It's are those holes not from big. shrapnel? Or
2: bullets? Uh, I think it's a mortar. Uh, yeah, it's a mortar. Yeah, what's We'll fix it by welding or replacement.
3: And they're trying to do what an entire city water department hasn't been able to do.
2: Corruption is, exists in all these departments.
3: He hasn't actually told the government what he's doing because he's worried they'll shut him down. But now he needs them. He needs them to turn the water on, to send the water through these pipes that he's been fixing. So he tries what he calls an experiment. He gets the number of the water director for the West Side and calls him on his cell phone, because you can do that in Iraq. And the guy actually answers the phone and says, yeah, I've heard of you.
1: He, he says, I've heard of you. Yeah,
3: he's heard of Safwan.
1: They saw his Facebook updates. Many thanks.
3: So they meet the next day, and they talk engineer to engineer. And the water ministry engineer shows Safwan the maps.
2: I will give you map, okay? Thank you. To
3: Because up until then, Safwan hasn't seen the maps of how all the pipes are connected, so he's basically been guessing. And a couple of days later, they turn a valve and bring water to hundreds of homes.
2: Just, I, I cannot describe this feeling. Uh, I think I, I am luckiest guy in Musa now. Uh, when you see that water fl- flowing inside each
1: house. That relationship of citizen to government People noticing a problem, starting to solve it, and getting the government to pitch in. That was not something that Jane had ever seen in Mosul.
3: This actually is something new, essentially the power of people.
1: And how do you feel about that?
3: I feel it's an amazing thing. And if it could work, that could actually, I know this sounds grandiose, save the country.
1: When Rough Translation returns, one phone call puts that power to the test.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, SmartWater. Creativity is taking something boring and making it exciting. And that's exactly what SmartWater did. 20 years ago, they took a look at water and decided it was time to change things up. By adding electrolytes for taste and using vapor distillation for purity, SmartWater refreshed the way we look at water. SmartWater, that's pretty smart. Support also comes from Delta. Delta flies to 300 cities around the world. That's 300 cities where many people do the same things you do. That's 300 cities where people in those 300 cities think they're the only ones who know about that one place. And 300 cities where people miss someone in one of Delta's other 299 cities. Delta isn't flying to 300 cities merely to bring people together, but to show that we're not that far apart in the first place. Delta, keep climbing. We're back.
1: This is rough translation. Getting people to come out day after day to drag dead bodies through the rubble in the 100-degree heat, it wasn't easy. So Sarur was glad that people knew what she was up to. It was good for recruitment. Every time a reporter wanted to follow her around, she said yes. And she said yes when she got a call from a show called Shabab Talk. It's on the program Deutsche Welle. It airs in a number of Arab countries. And they sent in a camera crew to film her team collecting bodies. And then she's invited to a live taping on the campus of the university that ISIS destroyed. So picture a town hall-style live audience in a circle of plastic chairs. Totally normal, except the backdrop is this bombed-out building with exposed rusted rebar.
3: I mean, it really had the feeling that they were trying to say, hey, we are in... A war-torn country.
1: Instead of a chair for her to sit on, it's three sandbags stacked up on top of each other.
3: And then the table was this makeshift thing set up on jagged, like, concrete blocks. I mean, it's not that hard to find a table in Mosul.
1: Out comes the curly-haired, handsome host, Jafar Abdul-Karim, and he introduces Sarur. And, and another activist, and across from them, the governor of this whole province of three million people.
3: Governor Noufal Al-Agu, he's a big man with a shaved head and these piercing eyes. Honestly, when I
5: first heard that they wanted to hear my story, I thought that they were going to thank me or give me a certificate of appreciation.
1: The host asks the governor the first question. What is he doing about the corpses in Mosul. And the governor gives this bland political answer. And then the host says he was out there for five hours with Saror in the field and he didn't see anyone from the governor's team. He's challenging him. The governor challenges him back. He says, who are you to be out there for five minutes and think you know something about Mosul? There's no bodies out there. So realize realizes not only is she not getting a certificate of appreciation, the governor doesn't even seem to know who she is or what she does. And even worse, he's claiming there are Nobody's. So when he says, who are you to be out there for five minutes, Surur grabs the mic and she says,
4: is that good, sir,
5: is six months enough for you?
1: The governor stares at her in his shiny suit and his green tie, looks like an angry school principal, but a principal with a police force. Surur looks even tinier than usual in her paisley headscarf with this big foam microphone. And he says, who gave you authority to pick up bodies in the old city? Which is actually a question that Sarur had a good answer to. She had told City Hall she was there and the Department of Health and government security forces. But Sarur doesn't say any of that. Not until later the show, and it won't matter anymore.
5: Sir, I've been moving bodies for six months. Our team is 30 people. So for six months, 30 people are going in and out every single day, and you didn't even know we were there. That's bad management on your side.
1: <laughs> the governor says, if I saw you out there, I would have chucked you in jail the host says please use respectful language on my show the governor says I don't care if the bodies of ISIS fighters are eaten by dogs is Soror an ISIS sympathizer and this will all plant the seeds of the media and social media campaign that the governor's allies will wage against her
3: and then the governor says this discussion is over and that lady shall sit in her place And if if it seemed like that TV taping was tense, I mean, she was certainly in for a lot more trouble.
1: Months after the show. <laughs> <laughs> we
3: go back to see the governor, and we see him at home. He has his vehicles running, his security detail waiting for him. But then as soon as I mention the name her he sits back down. And, and he starts smoking.
1: Now, Surur make a very big problem.
3: Mm. And it is clear that he has things he wants to say about Surur.
1: He's
3: ordered the military to investigate Surur. And he keeps saying, this is not her work. And he also says, and she didn't ask me for permission. So then he says, now there's an arrest warrant against her. And then he, like, wipes his hands over her.
1: And just like that, Soror's team is banned from working in Mosul. So we were
3: talking about meeting the water guy.
1: Yeah. And meanwhile, Safwan, who had quietly figured out a way to work with the government to get water to hundreds of homes. But
2: when, when you came for this story, I was thinking, what, I, what if I cooperate with the official department? I do that. This was experiment. I don't do that again.
1: He tells Jane about something that happened just before the guy from the water ministry turned on that valve.
3: The guy shows up, and Sifwan's plumber, the plumber's name is Zahar, and he had just been to the bird market. People there have pigeons as a hobby. They're homing pigeons, and some of these pigeons can be quite expensive, but he had bought two pigeons, and he had them in the cage. And the water ministry guy says to Zahar,
2: He he said to him, Hey, those are nice pigeons. Oh, these lovely two birds
3: because that's the way you ask for a bribe.
2: He mean, give me that.
3: So he gave him two pigeons, and the water ministry guy turned the valve on, and the water flowed, and Safwan so is furious.
2: How can I uh, talk against corruption and I cooperate? You know, I can, cannot do that.
3: He says, Zahar, you shouldn't have given them pigeons, but if Zahri didn't give him the pigeons, he wouldn't have turned on the water. Could you do more if you said, okay, I'm going to, it's okay that they're a little bit corrupt, I'm going to work with them?
2: What it mean, more in their pockets?
1: The explains, yeah, he wants to repair those pipes, and he needs the government to help do it faster. But there's actually something more fundamental about Mosul that he wants to fix, something that runs even deeper than the pipes under the ground. He says he wants it to be strange to think first about your own pockets and not about the common good. I I want to be
2: strange when someone don't help people.
3: What they're up against is so immense that you have to really ask, are they going to be able to survive? Testing. So I went to see the Iraqi army general who the governor had ordered to investigate Sur. So, can I ask you first, his name is General Nijamah and I expected him to be fairly suspicious of Suror. I mean, this is a guy who investigated her over a series of days. So, she was picking up bodies, right? And then the governor told her she couldn't do that anymore, she was doing a bad thing. What did you think of what she was doing?
2: I think she, she did a very great job.
3: At the end of it, he realizes she is who she says she is. I
2: respect her. He says he also
3: believes in this volunteer movement.
2: They help the people, they clean the roads. I encourage her.
3: He was a general actually in Saddam Hussein's army before two thousand and three, but he'd never been out of the country. And he says he used to stand at the border and look across and think, I wonder if it's different there outside Iraq.
2: I told the governor, uh, we need any effort here in the city. We need the youth effort to help the people, to give them hope.
3: And he says if the governor ordered us to arrest her, we'd ignore it.
1: This is where we were going to end this episode. In this transitional moment with Mosul destroyed but not yet rebuilt. Sarur sidelined but oddly protected. Safwan striking out on his own but still worried he could be shut down by powerful interests. And this whole hopeful movement in limbo. At least that's how we were going to end this episode. And then Jane called us up with some recent news.
3: Yeah, yeah, it was big news. It was on this beautiful spring day, a national holiday with all these families out at the amusement park in the river and a boat sink. Nearly 100 people are dead after a ferry capsized Iraqi in Iraq. families ready for a day of Many fun. Many of the victims were celebrating the Kurdish New Year. And there was also video of the boat overturning, flipping over, and you could see these people bobbing in the water before they were carried
1: away. Mosul emergency responders were overwhelmed. They lacked equipment and manpower. So desperate for assistance, they put out a call for volunteers two of those volunteers drowned while trying to recover more bodies from the water.
3: So the governor shows up at the site of the tragedy and he's greeted by this crowd. These protesters they're mostly young men and they're holding signs saying no to corruption and they're screaming, you're all thieves. The governor gets into his vehicle And he tries to drive away, but people are throwing things at him. They're throwing bottles of water and bricks, and the bricks shatter his window. And as he frantically tries to drive away, he actually runs into two people. He, like, injured a cameraman and an activist. And that was the catalyst for something that was also very rare. The governor is removed by Parliament, an actual act of Parliament. An arrest warrant was issued for him.
1: This is the governor, of course, who issued the arrest warrant at one point against Sarur. What does his departure then mean for this young movement?
3: For Sarur, for instance, she can do volunteer work in Mosul again. And this group of volunteers started a hashtag and it basically translates as we've started.
1: Oh, we started something? Like the governor's out?
3: We're on our way. We have a voice. And they called for people in Mosul to come out and clean the streets. It wasn't just volunteers who came out, though. Mm-hmm. It's people who wouldn't have dreamed of coming out to clean the streets. It's members of parliament. It's officials. It's the military. Because you know what? Now volunteering is kind of cool.
1: In one of the cell phone videos from this day of cleaning the streets, you see somebody from City Hall giving an impromptu interview saying, We realized that People are eager for this kind of effort because, he says, people love their city. Today's show was field produced by Michael May and mixed by Mitchell Johnson. Jess Jang produces Rough Translation. Marianne McCune is our editor. Thanks to Sangar Khalil, Mohammed Masood, Farad Jamil, Kintara Cultural Center, Fahad Sabah Book Forum Cafe, the Make It More Beautiful organization, and Vice News. Video of the governor fleeing was filmed by Mosul photographer and fellow volunteer Ali Al-Barudi. Thanks also to Larry Kaplow, Megan Kane, Sana Krasikov, Quill Lawrence, Andy Mills, Alec Cohen, and to our interpreters and translators, Noor Wazwaz, Ahmed Abduhamda, Amin Al Jalili, Barah Al Khatiri, and Ali Al Naimi. Our executive team is Neil Carruth, Will Dobson, and Anya Grunman. Sarah Knight fact checked this episode. Our theme was composed by John Ellis, mastering by Andy Huther. If you'd like more stories like this in your podcast feed, rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, and tell people about our new season that just launched. Find us on Twitter at Roughly or on email at roughtranslationnpr.org. I'm Gregory Warner. Back in two weeks with more Rough Translation.